Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asia. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Ely Wu about a book that she just published in 2010 with the University of California Press, and it's called Reproducing Women, Medicine, Metaphor, and Childbirth in Late Imperial China. Now, this is a really fascinating book on many levels, not just for historians of Chinese medicine for whom it's going to be, I imagine, required reading for many, many years to come, but also for anybody who's interested in the history of bodies, the history of what it has looked like to understand bodies, and also methodologically what it looks like for a historian now to do a history of bodies. This is a book that brings together a really rich set of contexts, um, in cultural studies and the history of uh, social relationships and textual production and all kinds of phenomena that together um, are brought to bear in um, producing a really rich, uh, very multi-layered history of medicine, healing, and ideas about childbirth, um, which Wu reminds us at the end of this interview involves much more than simply um, a history of women. Uh, Childbirth and family history is something that's relevant to all manner of uh, historical disciplines. So uh, welcome to the interview. Hi, Ely. Hi, Carla. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your really wonderful book um, that just came out with the University of California Press in 2010, um, and that's Reproducing Women, Medicine, Metaphor, and Childbirth in Late Imperial China. Now, for listeners who haven't yet had the um, opportunity to read this book, it's not only a tremendously engaging book to read, um, but it also offers several things simultaneously, which um, was one of the wonderful things for me about reading this. Um, it's at the same time a history of transformation of medical practice, ideas, and culture in late imperial China, um, and a really fascinating way, I think, for scholars who may know nothing about China um, to rethink the ways that the female body was experienced and understood in that context. And I think there's um, lots of much broader um, implications of that aspect of the work. So thank you so much for talking with us about it today. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Carla. It's, um, I think as anyone who's written a book knows, like one of the most amazing things is uh, not just that people read your book, but they actually want to talk about it. So this is a great pleasure for me. So thank you very much. Oh, it's our, my pleasure entirely. Um, so Ely, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Um, yeah. So, um, I have a, I will go in reverse chronological order. So, um, I, uh, got my uh, degree in Chinese history. Um, and this book originated, um, as my, uh, dissertation. Um, and eventually I did a lot more research. So the dissertation part of it really, uh, shrunk down and completely changed the narrative. Um, I, uh, 
came to history pretty late in the game. I was a poli-sci major as undergrad and then did a degree in international relations. Um, and it was while I was doing that degree that um, I became interested in China and ultimately decided to go into history. Um, so after I got my degree, I taught for 13 years at Albion College um, in Albion, Michigan. Um, and over the um, course of the, you know, having a family life and commuting and um, trying to balance teaching with research, I recently decided to become an independent scholar. So right now, I am uh, devoting my time to um, uh, health, family, and research in that order. Um, and I'm lucky enough to live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, where my husband is a faculty member, um, and I've uh, made some connections with the Center for Chinese Studies. And I'm also a visiting scholar in the um, Department of Asian Languages and Cultures at UM. So I have a really nice uh, group of people that I can talk to, lots of great talks, great library. And I'm really excited about this new chapter in my um, career. That's great. And I think it's, um, this is a really, um, this is quite an inspiration for lots of us who are thinking of, you know, possibly going in that direction. And the, the book is amazing. And so. Oh, thanks for sharing that. So how did you actually come to work on this topic? I mean, with a background in IR and poli-sci, what brought you to history of Chinese medicine? Well, I actually um, came to it through an interest in the history of Chinese women. I was um, in graduate school, and I was looking around for uh, a dissertation topic, and um, it was a bit of a running joke among my cohort that like I changed my mind every two weeks about <laughs> what my dissertation was going to be on. Um, and I... I became very fascinated with uh, women's history, um, and specifically women's history in China, which at the time was just achieving a kind of critical mass. So we had a lot of the real seminal works um, being written and people really um, breaking down uh, sort of old stereotypes and old models. So it seemed really, really exciting uh, to me. Um, and so I was looking around for uh, something related to work on, and um, I discovered through the works of Charlotte Firth, um, who has just been a great mentor of mine and a real inspiration. Um, and at the time, she was really the only person publishing in English on this. And I came across some of her early articles on the history of women's medicine, and I was just fascinated. Um, and I think what really appealed to me was that a lot of the work that had um, been done um, on women at the time uh, looked at things like family and uh, cultural values. And um, and what appealed to me about the medicine was um, I felt there was this whole material world that we had to consider, right? So that if we want to understand women's lives, it's um, we need to understand how people thought about women and how people, um, you know, set up institutions um, in which women would pursue their, um, you know, family lives or, or, or emotional lives. But there's also this material uh, set of conditions. Um, so, for example, uh, could a woman expect to survive childbirth? Um, if, you know, she had um, an illness, what ha what did she do? Um, and because childbearing was such a huge part of what women were expected to do, um, it seemed to me that this was an area that really needed to be uh, studied. And at the time, it was kind of exciting that, you know, there wasn't um, a whole lot of other stuff um, that had been written yet. Um, there's been a lot more written since then. Um, and I felt like I could kind of go exploring um, and sort of see what turned up. 
That's great. In the process of, I'm um, just out of curiosity, in the process of going from a dissertation to a book, you said that there were quite substantial changes that you made to the structure of the narrative. And for other readers who might be experiencing the same thing right now, or for um, or for listeners in graduate school who are thinking of that transition, um, yeah. can you talk a little bit about what changed from the dissertation to the book? Yeah. Um, so I have to confess, you know, when I was a graduate student, I think a lot of graduates into this, you know, you sort of think like, you know, you're young and you're kind of ambitious. You're like, yeah, I can do this. And, you know, this is really easy. And, um, and I remember Charlotte Firth telling me about her own personal journey and, um, her book flourishing in, which came out in, um, 1999. Um, it, it took her quite a long time to write it. And she said to me, you know, it really took me this long, this 10 year period to, um, to really understand these texts. And so on the one hand, I was kind of discouraged. I was like, oh man, it's going to take me so long. But on the other hand, I was like, ah, oh, it's not going to take me that long, you know, but it did. It did. It really took me a long time to really understand what to do with the stuff in the texts. And I think my dissertation was very much the first step in that. And it focused much more on uh, families of doctors. Okay. So I looked at, you know, uh, families that had claimed a hereditary transmission in women's medicine. Um, the particular families I looked at were concentrated in Jiangnan, which is Southeast China, basically the area North and South of Shanghai. Um, and, um, your listeners who, um, are familiar with Chinese history will know that was historically, uh, the most, um, economically and culturally developed part of the empire. Um, and so I just spent a lot of time um, getting a grip on the source material. Um, one of the things that um, people might notice in the book is that some of these works um, were constantly republished, and you have dozens, even hundreds of different editions. What do you do with all this stuff? You know, um, how do you, what do you do with the differences and similarities that you find between them? Um, and then ultimately, what do you do um, with uh, change over time? And that was the other thing, because in the Qing, they're constantly citing works from earlier periods. So what does this all mean? Um, so one of the things that happened then uh, after I finished the dissertation was figuring out, you know, is there a bigger story? that I can tell. I've spent some time looking at these doctors, um, at their specific texts, but, um, what's the narrative? Um, and, um, so if, because I was teaching at a liberal arts college, um, there wasn't this pressure to put something out in uh, six years, which is, um, both a blessing, but also you have a lot of time to just <laughs> kind of wander around. Um, and ultimately what happened is with the, um, um, with the final book, um, one of the things is I felt I was really able to contextualize all this in a larger uh, story of social and economic change, cultural change, and how this knowledge was being created and shaped by that. One of the things I really wanted to be able to say was, what is it um, about the Qing that's distinctive? You know, what is it that's different from the earlier period of time? And the other thing that I think I was finally able to do, and it's a kind of thing... Um, that I think really depends on you feeling confident that you know what's going on, um, is to make it accessible to people who are not specialists because it's very easy. Um, because concepts are so complicated. You spend so much time, you know, parsing them out and it takes a real effort to sort of pull yourself out of that textual minutia and, and stand back and say, how can I make this relevant to somebody who doesn't have a vested interest in knowing about 
Chinese medical history. And um, one of the great suggestions I got from reviewers was to try to start um, the chapters with an actual case. So at the beginning of each chapter, we meet a woman who has had some sort of difficulty, um, either infertility, uh, repeated miscarriages, uh, difficult labor, death, and childbirth, and then say, well, here's the material reality. So how are people responding to this? What were the kind of resources they drew on this? How is their choice of resources uh, shaped by um, belief systems, by technological um, capabilities, by social structure, by family structure? Um, and so hopefully, what I really tried to do, I think, is to um, make this uh, relevant you know, to a, a broader audience. Um, so I think it was that process um, of mastering the material and then figuring out how to present it um, that really took a long time. Um, and what I think is that, um, you know, hopefully they'll make it easier for um, the next sort of group of people who do this because there will already be these these reference points. But um, a lot of this I felt I was kind of figuring out as I went along. Yeah. And I think actually the book really succeeds on that level of being able to communicate with people who have no background um, in history of medicine, in history of China. Um, so I think it was definitely worth um, worth the, the time and it, it really succeeds Thanks. Um, in that. And um, I was actually going to ask you about the um, how you decided to uh, open these chapters with an anecdote, right? So you, it, this came out of a suggestion from reviewers, is that right? Yeah, and also editors. And um, so it's funny because I, I feel very much that I'm still a learner, that I'm still a student. And it kind of takes me aback when... Um, younger scholars will say to me, well, how did you get your book published? Because I sort of uh, bumbled my way <laughs> through it. And um, the manuscript was actually turned down by UC Press before they published it. Um, and what happened was I had finally pulled this thing together. I had sort of de-dissertationized it as uh, Reed Malcolm at UC Press says, um, you know. And I had pulled it together, but I wasn't really sure, you know, what to do with it. Um, but UC Press had expressed interest, so I sent it off to them. And um, and the reviews came back generally positive, that they felt there were some restructuring things that had to be done. And um, and I was told, well, you know, we can't take it to the editorial committee. Um, it's not strong enough. Um, you know, you have to decide what you want to do. Um, and again, teaching at a liberal arts college, I didn't need to have that book to get tenure. Um, and I, uh, agreed 100% with everything the reviewer said. Um, and it was at that point that, um, it was also suggested to me that I should try to, uh, start each chapter, you know, with something that would draw the reader in, not with some, you know, historiographical argument or some theoretical perspective, but really to emphasize, um, I think the human aspect of it. Um, and once I did that, uh, it all kind of fell into place. Um, because, uh, I think it also, um, you know, helped me to see what would be interesting about it uh, to other people. Um, and, and, um, and with something like Chinese medicine, I think people can be very intimidated by it. Um, the concepts seem really exotic. Um, and, um, you know, the, the conditions that they're dealing with too are things that we may not necessarily see anymore. Um, and so what I wanted to say is, look, here's a woman you know, she died. <laughs> so, so, so how did people try to make sense of that? And I think that's something that, uh, you know, people can relate to. Yeah. Let's actually, that's a perfect way to get into, um, the book itself, right? Um, I think we, um, why don't we talk a little bit about 
this first case study that you actually opened the book with. Um, it opens, so the book opens with this wonderful and tragic, but wonderful to read for a reader, um, story about a doctor, um, Yan Chunxi, and his wife, Ms. Shen, in 1713. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, or tell our listeners a little bit about um, how the book opens and what's going on in 1713 when we first meet this um, cast of characters? Right. Um, well, I have to say that this, I love this anecdote. I mean, it's tragic, but I love it for a variety of reasons. One of which I stumbled on it totally by accident because it's actually um, buried in the middle of a book that um, Yan Chunxi uh, later wrote on uh, treating women's diseases. And um, for me, it was just so poignant that here he is, here's this doctor, he's trying to teach other people. And um, his wife has died in childbirth. And you know, for him, it's um, uh, it's it seems to have been a preventable tragedy, um, because the point of this is that um, he thinks the doctor makes, uh, misdiagnosed her. Um, so basically, Miss Shun has delivered a baby. Everything's gone smoothly, but in the postpartum period, uh, she starts to um, hallucinate. She starts to rave. She's clearly very ill. And her husband is um, working, um, trying to become an official, and he has some kind of official post this time. And he's um, away. Okay, he's he's out of town, um, supervising uh, some grain shipments. And so the family sends word to him that uh, she's ill. Now, in the meantime, they've called a doctor, um, and the doctor. Uh, diagnoses her as um, suffering from an internal stagnation and invasion of external pathogens. So he prescribes um, basically purgatives. Okay. Um, and the family says this is what he's done. And Yen Chun Shi says, no, I don't think this is what she's suffering. Um, I think her uh, disease is actually rooted in depletion, so please go give her ginseng. So he says, send her back with pleasure. And the doctor refuses. Okay. And uh, he rushes home. She's uh, on death's door. And uh, in the doctor's absence, he uses replenishers and seems to, um, you know, help her to revive a little bit. But then she dies. Okay. So the point here is that here's this woman's death, um, which is a pretty um, concrete material fact. And the death is an opportunity, is a, um, uh, point where these two men are arguing about what is the right way to treat her, right? Should we use these drugs? Should we use those drugs? And so I use this as a way to introduce um, the idea of framing medicine. In other words, we have this illness. How do you understand it? How do you explain it? And then from there, the book says that what I'm going to do is to explain um, the different points of debate right? The different points of disagreement and the repertoire of ideas that people drew on, you know, when these tragedies happened. Right. And I think actually <clears throat> that brings up a really um, important point that you mentioned in the introduction and that um, really uh, permeates the entire book, which is the importance of um, the idea of what our colleague Volker Scheid has called plurality and synthesis, right? And you cite him in the book. And um, I think this is a, a really great anecdote for illustrating the fact that contrary what, to what some readers might come to this book believing, there's not there's no one Chinese medicine, right? There's actually a lot of different ways in this period of thinking about um, even you know how to treat a single illness with uh, different kinds of drugs. And um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the idea of plurality as it shapes the way um, the way you wrote the book? Yeah. 
So, um, you know, when you're asking me about my personal background, I mean, one of the things um, I think that has affected me in a lot of ways that I didn't realize until I started teaching and, and writing. Um, so I was born in the United States, um, and my parents um, uh, came from Taiwan and mainland China. And I think that when you grow up um, in that kind of bicultural way, you end up um, having to deal with a lot of perceptions that people have. Um, so dealing with a lot of perceptions of, you know, Asian and Chinese culture. And then when I would visit my uh, relatives in um, Asia, a lot of their perceptions about, you know, what so-called Western culture is. And I think that a lot of my work, including this book, and um, especially in my teaching, um, has really focused on the idea of stereotype busting. Um, and I think that there are a lot of stereotypes about Chinese culture um, and about Chinese medicine. Um, that persist even at really high levels. Um, so on, uh, one of my friends posted on Facebook a recent interview um, with a political scientist who said that, you know, if you want to know how to deal with Chinese political leaders, what you should really ask yourself is, what would Confucius do? Because we all know that they're following Confucius. Never mind the fact that they've gone through decades. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, this is a political science professor at a major research university. Um, and I don't know if this person was quoted correctly or not. But anyways, so the, the tendency, I think, is for people to assume that Chinese culture, whether it be medical or other, is really monolithic. And I think with Chinese medicine, um, that tendency is exacerbated by the politics of alternative medicine, mm-hmm. right? Then in order for current day practitioners of Chinese medicine to make a case for themselves, they have to say why it's better than Western medicine uh, or why it can do things Western medicine cannot do. And immediately you have this, um, these stereotypes of Western medicine, which is now all the same and, you know, Chinese medicine, which is now all the same. And the other thing that happens is in order to legitimate Chinese medicine, there's a real hearkening to antiquity. So look, it really works because they've been doing this thing for 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, whatever it is, years. Okay. So there's a tendency both to um, erase contemporary diversity as well as historical diversity. And so what I wanted to do um, with this emphasis on plurality and synthesis is saying, look, it's really pretty complicated. There are a lot of different ways that people are trying to address these things. And there are a lot of different ways that they're um, referring to these doctrines. And sometimes they don't even refer to these doctrines at all. They're just taking drugs, you know, and somebody knows that this drug is good for X thing and they take it. Um, And so I wanted to show very much that, um, you know, medicine is this uh, live thing. It's dynamic. It's changing. People are seriously evaluating it in a lot of different ways. Um, they're not simply passing on some sort of ancient knowledge in an uncritical, you know, automatic way. Um, and to really say, um, it's a very human experience, right? And so people have doubts, they have arguments, doctors are screaming at each other, calling each other names, saying you quack, you know, and even very eminent doctors, um, accusing their competitors, equally eminent competitors of being charlatans. Um, so I think to, to show that complexity and, and just, um, you know, uh, diversity, I think is really important. 
Yeah. And talking about, or as, as you bring up the issue of complexity and diversity, um, another way that that really uh, manifests on a different level in this book is the range of sources that you bring to bear in telling these stories, right? I mean, I think the um, since we're in the introduction here, it's a good time to, um, to ask you how you actually dealt with the research process here, because in telling this history of medicine, you're, uh, you're bringing together and juxtaposing this really amazing range of not just medical texts and various editions of medical texts, but gazetteers and poems and all kinds of different kinds of uh, documentary material um, that are all relevant to this sort of cloud that of phenomena that we're calling medicine. How did you, what was the research process like for you? And well, I, what happened, I think, is I really started with the medical texts. And um, this is something that has, um, you know, possibilities as well as limitations. Um, and one of the limitations is that these texts really only represent a particular point of view. So on the one hand, these are literate men, but they're also literate men who have certain forms of social capital. Um, and one of the things that I talk about um, in one of my earlier chapters is that for a medical text to survive, somebody had to have the money to print it and somebody had to decide it was worth saving um, in some way. Um, but at the same time, this is a body of knowledge that we still don't know everything we need to know about. So it's still worth studying. Um, and so what I really try to do, um, and I think sort of bringing in these other sources, um, was to say, okay, who are these people? Okay. What else are they doing? Um, I eventually ended up, you know, looking at the history of publishing, um, and the history of women's authorship, um, and the other thing that I really tried to do was to bring in a comparative perspective. So, um, in some, throughout the book, I talk about, say, what is going on in Europe at this point? You know, so if we're going to compare, you know, what Chinese midwives or Chinese male doctors were thinking, um, you know, how did that compare to other places? Um, so, because I think otherwise, if you don't have the comparison, people think it's just some kind of weird thing that Chinese people are doing. Um, but really the, the sort of, technological resources they have um, are not all that different um, in practical terms from what people in other places have. Um, so I think with the research process, again, it was you know trying to understand these texts and then just very intentionally trying to place them in the broader context. And that's what, you know, allowed me to bring in these other things. Um, and the other thing that was really fun is um, in during the long process of writing this book, um, I gave a lot of different talks on it. And um, one of my favorite talks was at the University of Michigan Medical School. I was a speaker for Grand Rounds in uh, the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And um, I gave a talk on uh, pregnancy loss, during which I mentioned this belief that, you know, pregnancy should go for a year, two years, three years. Um, and that one of the uh, material proofs that supported this idea was these uh, supposedly white and withered fetuses that would be eliminated from the body after one of these extra long, you know, pregnancies that ultimately failed. Um, and afterwards, uh, one of the OB-GYNs came up to me and said, you know, those things really exist. You know, they're called mummified fetuses. <laughs> and I said, really? He said, yeah, we still find them today, you know? Wow. Um, so I think having 
that kind of um, these very broad conversations with with people um, pointed me in different directions, and then also just always trying to to understand the the social context and the historical context in which these things were um, were produced. Right. Thank you. That's. Um that's actually fascinating, <laughs> the experience at medical school. Um, so the uh, so moving to the first chapter, sort of the first substantive body chapter of the book, um, this chapter, as, as I read it, looks at the changing ways that male doctors um, constructed medical authority in late imperial China. And so this is um, this chapter really starts getting into changing forms of medical legitimacy in the context of um, Fuka, which you're which you're translating as women's medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Can you um, talk a little bit about about that for us? Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things I wanted to bring out was that the medical ideas that we see in the text really represent a male form of medicine. And I think that is often um, overlooked, right? That this is a body of knowledge that is being produced with reference to a specific um, set of gender relations. And what you really have happening is is, um, historically, female healers play a very central role in caring for women who are, you know, giving birth. Um, and what we see is that over time, male doctors carve out a sphere for themselves. And they say, okay, um, even though this is women's sphere and childbirth is a woman's matter, even though there are these very experienced female practitioners, we men um, have something to say about it. And um, the things that we have to say about it ultimately are more learned and more insightful um, than what the women have to say. <laughs> so, um, so that's basically the process that I'm looking at. And so I talk about, um, for example, um, the tradition of medical specialization within the government, um, something that goes uh, uh, back uh, at least to the Tang, if not earlier. Um, and it's uh, linked to medical examinations and um, specialized medical books. I look at, again, a uh, male form of uh, organization, the medical lineage, okay, where medical knowledge is a form of family capital that provides a livelihood for the male members of the family. And the fact that um, this knowledge is passed down to the male line also proves that it's um, a uh, efficacious set of, of remedies. Otherwise, you know, people wouldn't use them. They wouldn't work. Um, and I also talk about the links um, between medical authorship and medical publishing and male norms of social service. So these books are published um, for some kind of uh, public use, whether it's within the government, whether the doctor is trying to establish his reputation, um, whether it's to disseminate useful knowledge. Um, so, so that's basically the, the central, um, uh, set of issues that I talked about in the first chapter. Um, the other thing that I look at is how this, um, masculine, uh, set of practices um, how that's linked to certain ideological changes in the content of medicine itself. So one of the things they talk about is that there is a more benign view of the female reproductive body that really blossoms okay, by the Qing. Um, and what that is responding to is this very um, deeply rooted historical idea that women's bodies are polluted, that childbirth is polluting, that women are very different from men. Okay, and this is uh, the set of beliefs um, justifies, you know, um, childbirth being uh, overseen by women, 
Okay, it justifies ritual beliefs that involve like physical segregation of women who are birthing. Uh, and it also is linked to an older medical discourse which says that women are quantitatively different from men because they give birth. And as these male doctors, and particularly these educated male doctors, make a greater and greater claim for um, some kind of expertise, what they say is um, actually women are not so different. Okay, and we know this because we have studied Neo-Confucian cosmology, because we uh, have studied the way the universe works, and we realize that women's bodies are really not so different from men after all. Okay, yes, there are these few exceptional cases, but basically, um, you know, they move away from this idea of uh, pollution. They move away from this idea of childbirth as something that makes women irrevocably different from men. And they produce what I call is a a more optimistic view of female difference. And um, I use the analogy of the glass half empty, half full, right? So nobody's denying that women have medical needs that are different from men, but what you see happening is that um, that difference is de-emphasized as time goes on. So in earlier periods, the rhetoric is that um, women are different from men, except in the in cases um, where they're not. And in the uh, latter part, um, the late imperial period, the rhetoric is that women are the same as men, except for a few you know cases of childbirth-related illnesses. Um, and so I really try to tie together the changes in the rhetoric with the changes in the demographic composition of these male doctors who are um, becoming uh, more and more closely allied to uh, norms of, of classical scholarship. Yeah. And I think that actually um, as a reader that, and even as someone you know, who, who works in Chinese medicine for part of uh, part of my professional life, um, that, tr- that cross temporal, that diachronic perspective on the sort of change in these ideas of sameness and difference was really, really helpful in that chapter. And I imagine this is going to be a very widely assigned chapter on syllabi, um, for many, 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 many years to come. Um, so thank you for this chapter in particular. Um, so this, uh, this beginning of the book actually really nicely sets up um, a trans-temporal context within which this uh, new perspective that I think you reference um, as de-exoticizing female difference emerges. Um, we sort of, we move then... Um, to a discussion after this, after you've, I think, really wonderfully set the stage um, of this context, to look at um, something that you've actually mentioned briefly earlier in our discussion today, which is the role of popular print culture um, Mm -hmm. in helping to affect these changes and really shaping medical culture and also, more specifically, the culture of women's medicine in the Qing. Can you um, talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, what I was responding to um, with this chapter on amateur medicine, again, is this idea that, you know, these these texts represent some kind of monolithic thought. And I think um, there's a tendency to assume that so-called doctors in China occupied a position of power, you know, analogous to modern day doctors. And one of the things I really wanted to stress was, yes, you know, these guys' writings have survived and they really dominate our understanding of medicine because they have survived. Um, but they were not necessarily dominant back then. And in fact, I actually think these male doctors are on the defensive. Uh, um, and one of the reasons is because um, there is a, a, a very deep and broad belief that everyone can be their own doctor. 
um, in a sense, right? That um, if you think about what these doctors are doing, they don't have x-ray machines. They don't have the prescription pad. You know, they don't have the stethoscope around their necks. Basically, what they can do is potentially open to anybody who wants to, right? They don't have licensing. Um, so they can't control, you know, who's in the profession. Um, and really all they have is a set of cultural norms, which says we're educated men, we're moral, uh, men, we care about the welfare of the world. And therefore we have developed this, this expertise. So in chapter two, I look at popular publishing, um, and how people who distrust doctors, um, or who fear that um, others don't have access to good medical care for one reason or another, how these people are publishing and disseminating books um, on on women's diseases um, and also many other subjects. And these are people who don't see themselves as doctors, but who um, I call medical amateurs. And I use the word amateur in the old sense of, of somebody who loves a particular subject and does it um, out of that love rather than for pay. So some of these um, men are educated men who have spent a long time studying medicine and are quite knowledgeable. Other people um, are collectors. So they like to collect useful formulas. And um, I mentioned um, uh, one of the books, um, uh, a new compilation of test prescription um, published in the mid-19th century, where the author, uh, Bosch Amel, spends, you know, 20 years going around asking his friends, his family, you know, what prescriptions have you used, looking through medical literature, um, and uh, amassing these collections. So what I do is I look at the various ways that people with different levels of, of medical knowledge and medical interest would participate in publishing texts. And sometimes they're simply going down to the print shop. Um, I think of it as like the late imperial version of Kinko's, you know, <laughs> they go down to the print shop and some, you know, rich philanthropist is paid for the wood blocks to be carved. And they go down to the print shop and say, Hey, I understand you have these blocks here. Um, can you run me off a hundred copies? Right. Um, and indeed you'll see with some of these, these popular texts, the, the title page will say the blocks are in such and such a print shop in such and such a street. And, uh, if you go, if you want it on this grade of paper, it'll cost you this much per copy. If you want it on that grade of paper, it'll cost you that much. So I, I look at this, these, um, uh, different models of publishing. And then the other thing that I, I really talk about is the motivation. So you have this general sense that there are a lot of people who need access to good information. Um, and doctors are either not there because these people are in poor areas or doctors, um, are not competent or doctors, um, are too snobby to treat the poor or people who are important. Um, but above and beyond that, you have this idea that you can obtain, uh, karmic rewards for doing good deeds. And one of the good deeds that you can do is to print medical books. And so the two books that I talk about in this chapter are two sort of series of texts because they become, um, admixed with other things, um, depending on context. Uh, one is a group of texts associated with a monastery in, uh, Zhejiang province, the Bamboo Grove Monastery, whose monks claimed a, um, tradition of treating women that started in the Song Dynasty and continue well into the Qing. Um, so their texts start to circulate, um, in the late 18th century, um, and, uh, are driven, the, the publication is driven by this idea that these are useful things to distribute. 
And the other text I look at is the Dasheng Bian, which is the, I translate it as the treatise on um, easy childbirth, um, which again is a short text. It's written by an anonymous author, and um, but it becomes one of the medical merit text parks once um, is just being published by the thousands. Um, I, was, I was looking at this uh, again um, in preparation of this interview. And I said, wait a minute, the press run on these things is like bigger than the press run for my book. <laughs> <laughs> so people are really distributing these things, you know, by the thousands. And, um, and the, the thing to remember too, is they're giving them away for free. Okay. So you don't get karma for, selling the books you have to. So the, the publishers are making money printing these things, right? But um, the people who are, who are publishing them, they're giving them away for free. And they have, um, and one of the really fun things was to look through, you know, all these different editions and to read like the testimonials in the back and to read like lists of subscribers, you know, in the back you'd have like, you know, dozens of names and telling you how much money they put in and, you know, how many copies they got. And, um, and then you have these testimonials. So, you know, my wife was having a difficult labor. We feared for her safety. I vowed I would publish a thousand copies of this book and lo and behold, she gave birth to a son. So everything was good. No, I'm, um, uh, at sea and, and there's a storm and we thought we we're going to perish. I vowed to publish, you know, a thousand copies of the book and the winds calmed down. So it, I think what it was interesting for me um, and what I wanted to communicate to the reader was that, you know, medical books are being published for reasons that are not necessarily related to the medical content, but these other motivations, right, are shaping um, the literature that is there, and in particular, um, this uh, treatise on easy childbirth, um, it's now considered to be one of the most important works of the Qing. Um, not just because of the numbers, but I also talk about the fact that um, a lot of its uh, um, beliefs and, and ideas were taken up by other medical texts as well. So it's influential because it's being republished, but um, you know, elite doctors are reading it. And they're praising it and they're promoting it. Um, and so, um, so basically I wanted to just say, you know, this textual record itself is very, um, diverse as well. And we can't make any assumptions that, you know, these doctors are just going to lording it over other people. Right. That's, um, that's really helpful. And, uh, I, I love those testimonials. What a great set of sources. What a fantastic set of stories. Um, so as we sort of move from this chapter of the book to the next one, what you do, I think, really, really beautifully and really importantly um, is use the next part of the book to to really challenge some long-held assumptions about how to think about the Chinese medical body by looking at the importance of not just um, ideas of function, functionality, but also real material physical structure in um, discussions about and writings about women's medicine and the women's, the women's body. Um, in these texts that you're looking at. Um, so this chapter focuses, um, or a common thread that runs through this chapter are, is um, the importance of dialogue about blood and about the womb um, mm-hmm. in discourse about the woman's body. Um, and there's some wonderful analogies here and wonderful descriptions, but can you, um, ta- can you start us off on this chapter by talking a little bit about um, this idea of sort of the importance of blood in the womb and how that relates to um, what you're arguing about the importance of the body as being not just a kind of set of concepts, but also a material 
structural thing. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, a lot uh, and my perception and other people have filled, um, you know, can disagree, but, um, a lot of the early works on Chinese medical history were really informed by contemporary um, portrayals of Chinese medicine. Um, and one of the um, sort of dominant ideas, if you read, you know, popular accounts or, or, or lay people's accounts of Chinese medicine um, today is that um, the, the things that they're talking about, the qi and the acupuncture channels, they don't really exist. Okay, in in the body, they had a totally different view of the body. They didn't. Uh, it didn't bother them that these things were not anatomically locatable because ultimately they weren't concerned about the structure of the body. Okay, and um, for a long time that was something that I also accepted and, and didn't see any reason to question. Um, and when I first um, started, you know, looking at the history of the body um, in, in Chinese gynecology, right? You open the book and it's all about blood, right? The first chapter is about menstrual regulation in a lot of these texts. And what happened was um, I had been working on a paper which ultimately didn't make it into the book, but I had been looking at a um, text um, written in the 1850s by Benjamin Hobson, who was a medical missionary to China. And one of the things that he did was to... Um, create a set of books on Western medicine written directly in Chinese. And one of those books was on um, women's medicine. And he had all these images of wombs and anatomy and, you know, diagrams showing doctors how to put their hands inside women's uteruses and turn babies around during childbirth. And I was trying to draw a comparison uh, between his ideas and Chinese ideas. And the idea was, you know, how would a 19th century Chinese doctor have viewed Hobson's text. Um, and one of the things about his text was it was very uterus-centered. Okay, so the uterus was this divinely designed organ. It would you know, push the baby out on its own. It had all these wonderful properties. And I thought, well, they must have thought this was wacky because they didn't talk about the uterus at all in, uh, in Chinese medicine. And I kind of went on, on this for a while. And the one day I said, wait a minute, <laughs> did they really never talk about the uterus? Like, maybe I should go check this. And um, when I started looking, mentions of the uterus are everywhere. They're everywhere. I mean, you read these formulas, and it's all about the uterus is cold, or the uterus is depleted, or it's plugged up with fat, you know. Um, and so I, I wanted to understand, you know, what is going on, because one of the big differences, and, and here's where the comparative perspective is really important, right? If you look at Greek medicine and then later iterations of it in Europe, um, when they talk about, you know, women's bodies, the uterus is really, really important, right? And it's a, a major... Um, issue in how people define gender difference. Well, in China, when they talk about gender difference, they don't talk about the uterus. But when they talk about why do women have trouble conceiving, why do women miscarry, then the uterus becomes very important. So it's a structure um, that carries the baby. It's the place where male and female seed commingle and transform. And it requires a certain level of energy, of vitality. Um, and that is where blood comes in. Because the uterus is just this fixed thing. Okay. And they know what it is. They've seen prolapse uteruses, you know, falling out of the woman's body. Um, you can feel it with your hand. Um, there's a description of, you know, you, you can palpate this, this thing with your hand and, and, you know, midwives, um, are doing things like that. Um, 
So you can't really do much to it. Okay. It's kind of a given, but what you can do is you can manipulate blood because, um, Blood has the flow theorist for conception. Um, the overall state of female vitality is going to determine the health of the uterus. And blood, if it's not well regulated, can also block the uterus. So um, uh, blood as a vitality that's found in, in both men and women um, becomes very important when you think about the mechanics of, of, of reproduction and fertility in women. Um, because you have both this um, energy force but you also have a specific place in the body where certain things have to happen. Um, and if they don't, then, um, you don't get a baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and that's, um, I think that was a really, um, fascinating discussion, um, both, you know, methodologically as well as, um, sort of yeah, specifically about this particular context. And you, um, another fascinating discussion for me, at least that this moves into, um, after you sort of set us up by talking about the really refocusing our attention on the physicality and the structure of um, the woman's body in this context. There's this wonderful chapter um, about pregnancy and miscarriage in particular um, where you take us through, um, I think really interestingly, ways of reading the body, sort of ways of reading visual cues um, about the body um, in this context. And um, in particular, there are some fascinating discussions that you know were news to me um, about uh, pregnancy tests, for example, mm-hmm. in this context. Can you talk a little bit um, for our readers um, within this context of the ways that late imperial medical writers dealt with problems with pregnancy um, about set, like how, uh, how these writers would uh, debate and test whether a woman was pregnant? Right, because there were no pluses and minuses and the little sticks. Right, exactly. <clears throat> and, and I think for me, again, that was a really, you're thinking about like the material Interval that they lived in. Uh, I mean, I think now, you know, we just take it so for granted that, like, you know, when somebody's pregnant. Okay. And so the question is what happens when you're in a society, which is most of human society, right? And most of human history, people had no clue. Well, I shouldn't say that. There were signs that they could read. Okay. People knew there were certain signs. Um, but you could never really be sure um, until the baby came out what was going on. And this is an idea I got from a really um, stimulating talk I attended um, by Barbara Dudent, who has looked at uh, female bodies and medicine um, for um, uh, in Germany, okay, uh, history of German medicine. And she makes this wonderful point that you know pregnancy can only be confirmed in retrospect. After the baby comes out, then you know that is pregnant. Uh, the woman is pregnant, and one of the things that they, they have various tests, you know, that they can do. They can take the woman's pulse. Um, they can read observable signs, um, you know, cessation of menstruation being an obvious one, swelling of the belly. But there are other things, right, um, that uh, can create this. Um, and complicating the fact is that uh, women's bodies are different. Different women have different constitutions. They have different personalities and emotional um, states. And all of these can affect um, how or whether these signs uh, show themselves. Okay. Um, and then complicating this as well is the belief that pregnancy um, can last well beyond the usual, you know, 10 months. You know, they call it 10 months. Um, and... Um, so how do you know if, you know, a woman at any given time is pregnant, was pregnant, okay, is still pregnant? Um, so, you know, I try to explain things that um, seem perfectly reasonable, according to Chinese medical thought, that are seem totally wacky if you look at it from, you know, our, our current perspective, which is, for example, a woman who's pregnant for three years, 
you know, how can that possibly um, uh, be true? And from a biomedical perspective, you could explain it as well. You know, somebody is pregnant. There was an intrauterine death. The it wasn't expelled, and she got pregnant again. As far as I know, she's been pregnant. You know, the whole time, right? Um, but I don't want to say that you know they believed it just because um, you know they were ignorant, right? There, there were um, because that's not true and that's not fair. And so one of the things they had to do is say what other things were supporting. Right, this idea, and one of the things that um, I found really interesting was the agricultural metaphor. Okay, so this is an agricultural society, right? They know about plants, they know about planting, they know about weather, and there's this met this metaphor which says the uh, production and, and the maturation of a fetus is like the maturation of a fruit. Okay, and you know if the weather is bad, right, the fruit can drop off without ripening, or ripening can be delayed. Okay, um, or it can be halted and start again, or you might end up with something really, really stunted. And then when you when you think about the woman's body, right, it makes sense that um, if a woman has um, weak vitalities, that it may just take longer, right, for the whole process to happen. And so, um, so there are beliefs beliefs that are actively supporting the kinds of interpretations that people are making based on the physical evidence. And we mentioned this issue of the withered fetuses, right? That, well, a woman expels a, what is clearly, right, a human baby in the making. It's all white and it's desiccated. How do you explain that, you know, that this could happen? Um, and so what I think is interesting is that, um, you know, I don't know if Chinese male doctors are actually observing these things, and I suspect not. I think these are things that people are talking about. These are things that people are reporting. Um, but there's a lot of observation going on that of things that we would not be observing today, right? So, for example, today you would have it determined you were pregnant. You'd be going, if you had health care insurance, you'd be going for your prenatal checkups. If there was ever something that stopped in the middle, they would do an ultrasound. They would sort of figure out what's going on. Um, you wouldn't get to, to that stage. But, you know, prior to this historically anomalous moment that we're living in right now, right, um, there was a different set of circumstances. And and what's interesting is, is for example, this idea of uh, extra-long pregnancies. You find this in um, Enlightenment France. You find this in, you know, uh, Islamic culture, it's actually something that occurs elsewhere. So again, it's not just something that the Chinese, you know, came up with. Um, one of the fascinating things to see um, how widespread um, these ideas were. Thank you. Well, I don't want to take too much of your Oh, yeah, I know. I talk too much. No, 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 no. I I just, I, um, there are a couple of things though that I really want to make sure to ask you about because they're particularly, I think, fascinating. Um, at least a couple of things in the context of, um, for, for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book or even for, for uh, listeners who have and would like to hear you talk a little bit more about it. Um, the, you talk a lot in the next chapter about this text that you, uh, that we briefly talked about earlier this a treatise on early easy childbirth um, situating it within um, a set of ideas in um, Qing medical texts um, of human birth being sort of meant to convey the spontaneity and ease of cosmogenesis so you talk a lot in this chapter about the kind of situating ideas about human birth and women's health um, in the con- larger context of kind of cosmological ways of understanding life um, can you talk a little bit about that Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think if you look at the, um, you know, history of childbirth, um, 
you know, even say in the United States, right, they, you have these alternations between people who think it requires really meticulous oversight and people saying it's a natural process, right? And so this idea of cosmologically resonant childbirth, which is the term I use, um, has a lot of um, superficial similarities to the idea of natural childbirth, right? That it's a natural process. You don't want to intervene. You want to teach the woman to be master of herself. But what I emphasize is, first of all, that um, it's based in a particular view of the cosmos, okay, which is um, distinctive to the Chinese philosophy and cosmology at that time. And the idea is that the nature of the cosmos is to produce life spontaneously and easily. And human beings who are animated by the same cosmological dynamics will be produced in the same way. So it's the Chinese don't talk about natural law, but in a sense, it's like it's the natural law, right? That things should be easy. So then the question is, well, why do people have difficulty giving birth? And what this author, um, Yafang, says in his treatise on easy childbirth is that people have difficulty because they mess it up. Because they think it's complicated, they intervene. The minute you know the woman feels any kind of twinge, she's beset upon by all these people, you know, pushing on her, shouting at her, telling her what to do, giving her drugs, and they're just messing things up, right? Um, and and and, and you know, you, you can think like today, right? If you you go into labor and you go to the hospital, they're like, no, not yet, not yet. You have to wait until you know you're dilated, right? Um, and what he's really saying is that you know. Don't jump the gun, right? Don't intervene. You think it's an emergency. You're trying to do all this stuff, but you're really just messing it up. And I can prove it to you, right? Because we know this is how the cosmos works. And also because I've experienced, and he actually cites cases, um, you know, where um, people thought a woman was having a difficult birth, but actually it was just that it was not the time for her to give birth. And when they left her alone, you know, things went well. And um, the story that opens this chapter actually is of a story of a woman who um, had had several labors ending with stillborn children. She uh, she had gone into labor in the eighth month of pregnancy and after heroic exertions by the midwife and by herself, the child would be born dead. Um, and uh, But our hero, you know, is called in and uh, he says, no, she's not really in labor. Go give her some tonics, let her rest, um, send the midwife away. Um, and then, uh, after another couple months, she gives birth to a child safely. Right. Um, and one of the points I make again, you know, why is this appealing? Okay. It's appealing for a couple of different reasons. I mean, intellectually it, um, resonates with, um, this ideal of the scholar doctor is somebody who understands the cosmos. Okay. So this really becomes the hallmark of the educated male doctor. He knows it's a natural process. He knows you don't have to interfere. You can just let it, you know, do what it wants to do. But the other side of the equation is that, you know, for most of human history, if you had a protracted labor, there really wasn't a whole lot you could do. Um, and I talk about, you know, what's going on in Europe at this time. Um, you either cut the mother open, uh, which she'll probably die or be permanently crippled in some way, or you chop the baby up. I mean, not to be crude about it, but that's what they did. And if you read, you know, gynecological text uh, from Europe of this period, it's full of instruments that are used to dismember the baby in various ways. Okay. And Chinese midwives are doing the same thing. Okay. And it's horrific and it's sad. So these doctors are saying, well, is there a better way? Right. And so one of the reasons this idea is very appealing is that it says, if you carefully regulate the woman's health through pregnancy, 
she has a you know successful pregnancy and you don't interfere with this natural process other than perhaps to give her some you know tonifying um, uh, medicines just to ensure she has enough energy right then everything will go smoothly okay and and you will avoid the difficult labors that arise from human error Okay, um, and so one of the points I make is that um, you know in China you don't see male doctors trying to push midwives out of obstetrics, and one of the reasons I say is because their view of childbirth was that it was natural, and therefore if you're a superior practitioner, you don't need to actually know how to pull the baby out. The baby will come out on itself. If you're a superior practitioner, i.e., male, right? What you will try to do is to protect the woman's health. Right, and then the midwife really is just there to keep the baby from hitting its head on the floor when it when it comes out. Um, so again, I'm trying to tie in, you know, the ideas with the material conditions, and then um, with the um, the social organization of, of healing. Thank you so much. Um, now the book continues with a chapter on um, sort of a. a the ways that late imperial doctors considered the period after the birth of a child, and you talk, um, I think, really fascinatingly about a kind of um, formula or a changing set of formulas called generating and transforming concoction. Um, and I want to just kind of point the listener in this direction because it's a particularly um, fascinating chapter that I think really forms a natural next step from the chapter that you um, just talked about. But I want to make sure that we don't take an your entire day from you. Um, <coughs> what I want to do is just make sure that we um, turn to an aspect of actually the way you conclude the book, which I found particularly inspiring and really, really interesting, which was this idea that um, in the context of thinking about relationships between ideas of gender and androgyny in this period and in this context, you propose the idea of an infinitive body, what you call mm-hmm. an infinitive body. I found this completely fascinating, um, and I'd love if you uh, would be willing to talk about that for a little bit. Right. So the question really is, um, how do people perceive gender difference, right? Um, And the sort of starting point for this um, was a book by Thomas LeCur called Making Sex, in which he talked about the fact that, you know, um, in in European medicine, you see um, two main ways of envisioning the relations between uh, male and female bodies. The earlier, what he calls one sex model, is that the female body is simply a lesser developed, immature version of the male body. So essentially, the male body is the human body, and it's just a question of if it's more or less, you know, cooked or matured. And then later you get a switch to what he calls the two-sex body, which is that male uh, men and women are com- two completely different sexes, and there are a certain number of, um, of just incommensurability uh, points between them. So then um, the question is, well, how can we apply this one-sex, two-sex model to the Chinese case? Um, and um, again, I'm building on the work of Charlotte Firth here, who in response to the curse said, well, this one-sex, two-sex doesn't really apply that well to China. What we really see doctrinally is that we have this androgynous body. Um, and then the question is, well, are there points at which this androgyny is challenged? Okay. So in thinking about this, you know, I really was um, working with this issue that if you look at all other aspects of Chinese culture, it's highly gendered. 
Okay. Um, you know, men are men and women are women and you're not supposed to mix, right? So that's saying that, you know, when the hen starts crowing at dawn, then, you know, the family's in trouble, right? (laughs) It's, 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 um, built into the cosmology, right? Women follow men because the moon is reflective of the sun, et cetera. So how is this awareness then right, of gender um, in medicine? And then how do you account for the fact that there does seem to be this androgyny? And I was actually um, originally going to major in linguistics. So this has been an ongoing interest of mine. And I started to think about how do you express what I see in the medicine and cosmology, which is that on the one hand, you make very clear distinction between different phenomena. On the other hand, they're all part of the same thing. Right. And so the Taoist explanation of creation, right, is you have the one which splits into the two, which splits into the three, which splits into the myriad things. So you have this simultaneous unity and multiplicity. And I eventually decided that this idea of the infinitive, right, as an, an infinitive verb, um, was a good um, way of thinking about it because you have a, a verb, okay, which can then be conjugated into different. Um, uh, tenses into different voices, right? But it's all the same. And so for me, I think what I decided is that, you know, the Chinese body doctrinally is, uh, there is an infinitive body. Um, but the minute you start to use it, right, then you conjugate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one set of conjugations has to do with sex, but they also talk about the difference between you know, old and young bodies, between Southern and Northern bodies, um, between rich and poor bodies, Right. And so, um, what you need to do when you're treating women is decide how you're going to conjugate that body is the most important thing that they're a female is the most important thing that, uh, that they've just given birth. Um, is it the most important thing that they're rich and coddled and therefore are fat and sort of sluggish, right? Um, so that was my way of, I think, squaring the circle of trying to find a way of talking about gender that I thought, um, really encapsulated this Chinese view, um, this philosophical view of, um, of how the different manifestations of reality are, are, are related to one another. Um, and it's interesting because in some of the early reviews I've seen, this seems to be the one thing that, um, has uh, gotten the most attention from people, even though it's kind of tacked on at the end, you know, as an epilogue is kind of my trial balloon to say, Hey guys, uh, what do you think about this? You know, is this possibly a way of, of, of trying to describe what we're seeing? I mean, I think it's, I loved that part and it's really fascinating because it's a way of thinking about, um, body history more generally, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is really something that, um, I'm not surprised it's coming up. It's in the early reviews because it seems like it's potentially has a lot of, um, it has legs to use a corporeal mm-hmm. metaphor. Um, so yeah, I loved that part. Well, Eli, before we wrap up, is there anything um, that you think is important for listeners to know about the book before they dive into it that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Um, well, I think one of the things that um, is important to realize, you know, in thinking about the place of childbirth, I think, in medical history um, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that it's not just a women's issue, right? Even though I think a lot of the advocacy around, you know, childbirth history as a field and about, you know, birthing practices um, has been very inter- intertwined, at least in, you know, the contemporary U.S., right, with issues of women's rights. I think it's important to realize that um, 
this is a major concern for um, you know all Chinese. Right. Uh, it's not just an issue of the woman's health or woman's agency, but the survival of the family depends on whether or not you have children. And we know that um, the bearing of children and the relationship between parents and children is very central to Chinese um, uh, moral, social and political thought. Um, and so. I would, um, you know, just like to encourage people to think about childbirth as, as really a human issue, right, and and not a uh, simply a kind of women's issue, a women's health issue. Um, and I think that's something that I've also tried to bring out here, um, and hope that people will, you know, regularly integrate issues uh, of women's reproductive health into into medical history. Thank you. So, Eli, now that you've... Uh, so, congratulations on the book coming out, and now that you've um, finished this project, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, my current project is a comparative study of um, Chinese um, medicine and British medicine specifically um, up until about 1860. Um, and I'm looking at uh, one particular Chinese doctor who is very interested in Western medical texts. His name was Wang Shixiong. Um, and the texts that he was looking at were by this British medical missionary, Benjamin Hobson. Um, and what I'm trying to do is to look at the way in which Chinese thinkers evaluated the utility of ideas coming from uh, the West. Um, because as um, many of your listeners may know, right, one of the big questions in uh, Chinese history is how did China um, adapt or change in response to uh, the pressures of Western imperialism and all that is of course linked very much to China's modernization in the in the 20th century and one of the big issues is you know how do they interact with Western science including medicine um, and so the early 19th century is much less studied than the later period, which is where medical modernization gets very intimately tied up with uh, issues of um, uh, national self-strengthening and racial survival. Um, but I think that this earlier period is, is necessary um, to understand because it sets up a lot of the patterns that eventually um, take center stage in the later period. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. And uh, I'm... As part of that, I'm, I'm really delving very deeply into anatomy because the Walsh well, Shishong was very interested in, you know, questions of bodily structure um, and also looking at uh, social organization of medicine. And uh, and I got to visit the um, the Wayne County morgue um, last week, yeah, because wow. one of the things that he's interested in is uh, knowledge from forensics. So I wanted to understand, you know, what does it mean to, like, investigate a dead body? And I found out... <laughs> Wow. How did you, can I just, how did you set that up? How did you? Well, I just, um, last weekend we had a conference on the, uh, called Global Perspectives on the History of Chinese Legal Medicine. And so it was ostensibly about, right, looking at the history of forensics in China, which, um, has a very long and storied history. Um, but this conference was set up, um, intentionally to be cross-cultural and interdisciplinary. And one of my co-organizers um, is the head of um, uh, forensic and autopsy services at the University of Michigan. And so the University of Michigan has uh, now contracted to provide some services um, for the, the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. And so through his connections, we were able to take a lot of our conference attendees over to, um, wow. yeah, That's- to understand, you know, what does it mean? to do a death investigation and that was really interesting really really interesting 
That's amazing. Wow. Well, um, thank you so much uh, for being here with us today, Eli. And I just want to say congratulations again on the book. It's fascinating read. It's one of the most well-organized monographs I've ever read. Um, and I think <laughs> this is going to be um, one of the classic books in our discipline for many, many decades to come, I have no doubt. Um, and it's. I hope it gets a very wide readership because I think it's um, a book and a set of issues presented in a way that really speaks um, much more broadly than simply to community of um, medical historians or Chinese historians. So thank you so much. Thanks, Carla. Welcome. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Carla Nappi, and thanks so much for being with us. See you next time.